the CMS Colloquium this afternoon. Uh, our speaker today is Carlene Maitland, Professor Carlene Maitland, who is co-director of the Institute for Information Policy and associate professor in the College of <coughs> excuse me, Information Sciences and Technology at Penn State, Penn State University. Um, and Professor Maitland's expertise includes analyses of ICT use in international organizations, especially for those involved in fostering economic and social development and humanitarian relief. Um, this next week, she's headed to visit three refugee camps in Uganda. Um, it's kind of work she does. She's going in. I think she's going to tell us a little bit more about that work, but she's going to be um, doing some analysis of network infrastructure in the refugee camps. Um, her research has been funded by the National Science Foundation. In fact, she used to work within the National Science Foundation as a program officer, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, USAID, the US Department of Commerce, and IBM, among other funders. Um, during the past couple of days, Carlene generously participated in a workshop called Media Refugees and ICTs that was organized by my lab, the Global Media Technologies and Cultures Lab. And the title of her talk this afternoon, let's see, I think it shifted a little. <laughs> Digital Lifeline? Yeah. Yeah, ICTs for Refugees and Displaced Persons. And this talk is also based on a book that she has forthcoming from MIT Press. So um, please join me in welcoming Professor Maitland. Lisa, it's great to be here this evening. And um, I'm a pretty informal person, so if you have any questions, please feel free to interrupt me. <laughs> Um, as uh, Dr. Park said, this is a talk based on my uh, forthcoming book. The book, uh, in the book, uh, it's an edited volume. I challenged the authors to, and myself, because I also authored a couple of the um, chapters, to, to really think about the future of technology and what kinds of research needs to be done to ensure that we get equitable use of our future technologies. So it has a little bit of what's going on now and some of what's going on in the future. Um, I'm going to talk here, provide some background, because I know not all of you are necessarily familiar with um, displacement and refugee affairs. And then I'll talk about two concepts that um, I developed in the book, uh, one being the concept of the digital refugee and what that means for future humanitarian action, and then also um, digital humanitarian brokerage, which talks about kind of the potential future of the humanitarian um, industry. Okay, so in order to talk about uh, information and communication technology use in this context, I think it's instructive to look at um, what some people talk about as displacement life cycle or the migration life cycle that we talked about in our workshop. Um, the reason that I'm interested in, in looking at these different cycles is because the information needs of people vary significantly um, in different stages. So you can imagine as somebody's trying to flee war or natural disaster, their information needs are going to be very different from when they are in temporary asylum. And during the phase of temporary asylum, if this person crosses an international border and if they meet the legal definition of a refugee, 
um, they can apply for refugee status, and that's known as uh, the status determination phase. And then they may settle down in that host country, as some, some organizations refer to it, if they cross an international border. Clearly, their information needs are going to be very different at that time than when they're fleeing, right? I mean, it may be similar to when you all moved to Boston, right? You got to find housing. You may have to register your kids for school. You have to find doctors. Even in a refugee camp, some of, this, some of these things are still the same, right? It's just life. Um, and so those needs and those needs may differ if you're in the city or if you're in a camp. Um, and depending on where you are um, and what you have with you, what technology you brought with you or didn't. And then finally, in the final stage, and, and of course, let me also preface this with, this is a gross simplification because you know, people come and they go and they come and they go. There may be, they may go through the whole cycle and then have to go through it again. I mean, it's, it's a very uh, severe simplification of a very complex process. So the last step is uh, resettlement or repatriation. So from the potential country of uh, asylum, someone might get resettled to a third country like the United States, and we had in the workshop, we had some resettled refugees come talk to us about their experience, their information needs, and their use of technology in meeting those needs. Or they may be repatriated back to their home country. And so we talked about that too, um, about repatriation back into Afghanistan. And so all of these different stages have different information needs, different, different some cases, different uses of technology. I want to talk uh, a bit about the refugee status determination and registration process um, because it gives us an interesting example of the use of technology. So um, refugee status determination, RSD, is a process whereby uh, authorities, usually the host country, is legally responsible for conducting um, this process, but they may uh, nominate uh, UNHCR to take care of this issue for them. And this process is very interesting because basically at that time, the authorities have to assess the veracity of the claim of the applicant. And this is based on, in some cases, the assumption of an information asymmetry, right? That a refugee can tell a story which may actually be true or not, and the authorities have to determine whether it's true or not. But if everybody has access to all information, how do you determine what's true or not? And do we still trust the sources that we used to trust as sources of true information in a world of fake news? Right? So I think there's going to be a lot of very interesting developments in the area of refugee status determination based on growing availability of access to information by refugees. Because it used to be thought that, well, they couldn't make up a story because what do they know about what's going on in Mosul? Well, they could probably find out a lot about what's going on in Mosul just with an internet connection these days. Right? Um, 
So then after refugee status determination, if the person is um, determined to be a refugee, they enter the process of registration. And registration is where they become formally, well, probably they become formally involved in, the, in this RSD system. But from there on, operationally, they are entered into the UNHCR information system. And there are every one of the agencies that work in humanitarian relief and that work with refugees have systems. Many of them depend on UNHCR's system because UNHCR <coughs> creates a registration number or an ID number for the refugee. And then everybody in this whole network of organizations tries to tie in to that number. Similarly to the, similar to the way that in the United States they try and tie everything to your social security <coughs> ID, right? So there's this sense of this is the number that all of, every time you go to get another benefit, they want to tie it to that number. <coughs> this, this process used to look more like this, right? Lots of pen and paper going on. Um, no more. It's rare that, th that you would get this situation. Um, because what is more likely is a situation like this, where the person doing the registration is uh, using either a desktop or a laptop computer um, and some form of biometric identification, even on children, is captured. And this, um, you know, in talking to people, because I've worked with UNHCR not as an, uh, as an employee, but as a professor working together with them. Um, you know, they said even in a place where it's just people are crossing over the border in the, in the woods or, or, you know, in the middle of the desert, they'll go out there with just a laptop. They're like, we don't need power. We'll just charge a laptop, go out there with our little fingerprint reader and, and capture fingerprints. So there's pretty much um, nowhere that they can't do this these days. And you can go on, and UNHCR has videos of them fingerprinting all, all over the world. OK. <coughs> so then we have life and asylum. And the information needs, like I said, can vary significantly. And the, the collection of data from the refugees continues. At every turn, there is information required from the refugees. Um, they are, uh, you know, if they want to go to the computer lab and sign up for a computer class, the organization that's offering the computer class has a grant from somewhere to offer the computer class. They need to report back to the donor how many people took the class. Were there positive learning outcomes from the class, right? Did they, what kinds of skills did they, did they develop? What did they do with the skills, right? So every time you sign up for a class, you have to fill out a survey telling all about your experience. All of that goes into a database, which then gets tied to your refugee number, right? If, if things work the way they're supposed to. It doesn't always happen that way, just like it doesn't happen. They have fragmented databases, just like we have fragmented databases. And so these are some pictures of refugees um, in Zatari camp, where I've done some field work, making use of technology in different, in different uh, formats. These, 
These two are um, working with a GPS device because they were involved in a mapping exercise. So we did some, you know, see how we can maybe make systems where refugees can map their own camp and, and make kind of a map that's useful to them. Um, these are just people on the street doing some work that, um, that they get paid for doing in the camp um, through cash for work programs, making calls to coordinate work just like we all do. These are some students uh, in the computer lab, which is, you can see up there. So on the one hand, you have right all of this information being, you know, I call it like we suck the data out of the refugees and it's just on and on and on and there's so much data it's crazy but at the same time the refugees themselves are creating data for themselves right they're making phone calls they're posting on Facebook they're posting on Instagram I'm getting old I don't know what's late <laughs> the latest one is <laughs> please some youngster tell me you know I mean it's it's just, I mean, you can't keep up, basically. Who knows, maybe they're on Snapchat, right? I mean, That's old. It's old. <laughs> Thank you. Dang. <laughs> you know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, when, I, when, uh, when my students were saying, like, National Geographic has a Snapchat channel, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I need to retire. So they're creating those, you know, I mean, you see these girls, what are they doing there, right? I mean, it looks like they're looking at pictures. Maybe they're on Instagram. I don't know what they're doing. But, you know, clearly these are, um, and it, it's funny, too, how, like, the use of technology is changing so rapidly. You know, when we were in Zachary, at first we went there in 2014 and, take my picture, take my picture, you took people's pictures, you know, and then, as the digital cameras started going into the camp, people donate more and more and more digital cameras. Then all of a sudden, they were, people were saying, oh my god, you know, don't take pictures anymore. And I'm like, oh yeah, I get that. I'm, I'm not taking any more pictures. And, um, or I try to take them so like, either they're people we're working with who want their picture taken, or we ask permission, of course. Um, but I have this one picture of a refugee taking a picture of me. Like her whole face is covered by the huge digital camera. And, and so they start creating all their own media, all their own um, pictures and videos and posting them themselves. And so just thinking about these two different ways that uh, information is flowing and being captured. So back to the aid organizations. So it's interesting what's been happening with the aid organizations. So Right now, there's a big move towards um, digital cash programming. And it used to be that aid organizations uh, would physically hand out food and physically hand out blankets. Um, things are changing. And the explanation for the changes are that we need to give refugees more dignity and choice. Right? And so in uh, Zatari camp and in lots of other places, uh, they have developed systems that allow the refugees to get their assistance through a card like this, which the refugees call their visa card. <laughs> yeah, 
Isn't that the funniest thing you've ever heard? <laughs> I was like, you're kidding, a piece of card. When it's a MasterCard. Um, and they go to the WFP run, that's World Food Program run grocery store, and they use a swipe card machine just like you and I do at wherever Wegmans, Stop and Shop, whatever you have here. Um, and that's how they buy their food. It's kind of interesting, though, because there's a very vibrant food market in the camp. So, you know, why do we need all of this rigmarole, right? If you gave the refugees this card and you let the Syrian food vendors in the camp, of which there are many, some very tasty restaurants, I mean, you know, they have restaurants there. But then there would be a problem because there would be a lack of control, right? And so there's a lot of themes of control. And those of us in IT understand very well the beautiful marriage between control and IT, right? So um, this, what do you think this is? This space. No. Distribution warehouse. A distribution warehouse that's now empty because they're not handing out food anymore. This camp is not that old, right? In a very short period of time, they went from handing out food and having this physical space, and they had the benches over here where the refugees would wait, and they'd all queue up. And this is a camp of 80,000 people. Um, and wait to get their food. And, and so we were, we were surprised. The reason we were surprised is because this is prime real estate in that camp. It's like on the main shopping street. It's like you know having a warehouse sitting empty on Com Ave in Boston, and you're like, what the heck was this? You know? And they're like, that was the food distribution warehouse. So you see even the physical impact that these changes create um, in that space. Um, we also, in our network measurements, found out that this had a really good cell signal footprint around it. And so we thought, I hope that you do something that takes advantage of that when you redistribute this space. Okay. When you're pushing out these kinds of programs, right, when you say, I want you to have access to the internet because I want to push you information on the internet or I want to send you money to through your mobile phone right so in other places they say well we don't want to use this this plastic card we, we actually want refugees to have it on their mobile phone and to use their mobile phone which is actually the camp that I'm going to in Uganda which is also not very old I think it's like two years max and there's 250,000 people there. Um, they say, well, okay, we're gonna push that out to your mobile phone. Well, you gotta make sure people have mobile phones, right? So they've started to hand out handsets and SIM cards. And handing out SIM cards is great because now you have everybody's phone number, right? Now, you know, 
Not everybody uses the SIM card they're given, believe it or not. They may say, hey, I came from this country and it's right over the border and I can still access that network because their signal leaks over the border, so I'm going to use that. So it's not perfect, but you have a better mechanism for reaching them, but also potentially some control. And so this issue of handing out phones can, in some cases, give people access, which is great. But what happens when your program, the funding gets cut? Hmm. Uh, yeah, I gave all these refugees handsets and SIM cards because I wanted to send them SMS messages to let them know that, um, or some health promotion campaign, and now the funding for our health promotion campaign got cut um, everybody who was involved in that, they're packing boxes and leaving, and what happens to all these handsets and SIM cards? I mean, they're no longer supported. New people coming in don't get them. And so you get this almost like fragmentation in who gets connected. And it's, it's not the way that we all normally experience our connectivity. This is actually an issue here in the States, too. There are homeless people who get social services, and some of our social services agencies are saying, I can't believe it. we could cut our costs and be so much more efficient if we could push information out to them via mobile phones. Maybe we should just go out and give them handsets. But then again, also, you have funding cuts, and then you have this intermittent connectivity. right? And how do we know how many people actually have phones when they're getting them in these very different ways than we're used to? So just something to keep in mind. Okay, so remember all that stuff I told you about the grocery store? That program changed. That little card, they don't need it anymore. Because all the refugees in Jordan have iris scans. They registered them, right? And then they said, okay, wait a minute, we want to iris scan all of you, so you have to come back. Right, and um, UNHCR released its data protection policy in May of 2016, a mere 12 years after they started using biometrics, um, and they will assure you that every one of these refugees um, has informed consent. They have consented to the collection of their data. I'm kind of suspicious because I heard about this like almost riot because everybody was running to the registration center because they heard there were eye exams being given and everybody wanted to have access to the eye care. I'm not sure that there was eye care going on that day. But also, if they said, no, I don't consent, do they get food? Uh, yeah. I'm not sure that there's really a process, right? So, so anyway, um, you know, uh, how many of you have about a stack of cards in your wallet that thick? Some of you might be sitting on them right now, right? They don't need them. Because guess what? Once we can authenticate the transaction via iris scan, we can also debit your account via iris scan. So you don't need a card anymore. And this is the state of the art since 2016 in grocery stores in camps in Jordan. So it's not just that UNHCR is 
collecting biometric data for identification purposes, they have signed a worldwide agreement with World Food Program to share biometric data so that we can integrate all these kinds of systems and to whose benefit? Right? They will say that this is a huge benefit for the refugees, right? The refugees get identification. I'm like, well, until the Jordanian police are driving around with iris scanners and they're integrated into the database and they can access that and then say, oh yeah, you're who you say you are, I'm not buying it, right? Because how does that work? I mean, it might work inside the camp, which is good, but it doesn't necessarily give you the kind of identification that we're used to. Like, I can go, I can get on a plane with my driver's license. If the cops pull me over, I can show my driver's license. I'm not seeing right now how iris scans do that. But who knows? Maybe there are things underfoot that I don't know about, but we'll see. Um, I can tell you that this is very helpful for World Food Program, right? And for UNHCR because now they have stopped a lot of graft in the system, and that graft does hurt some refugees, right? Because sometimes people were able to double dip, right? And so if they have enough food for 100,000 people and 20% of them are double dipping, there's a chance that 20% will also go without. And so that is a real problem. It's also a waste of money, right? Because you, you, because UNHCR is primarily funded by US tax dollars, many hundreds of millions of dollars in tax dollars. Um, so this, these, these efficiencies do have some benefits for the refugees, but they have also a lot of benefits for the organizations deploying them. Not only do they reduce graft, they improve accountability, because now WFP can say for sure exactly what that refugee purchased at the grocery store. They can do all kinds of analyses now on market behavior, on what people like, what people didn't like, which also has benefits, right? I mean, now we can give refugees what they like. It's not a bad thing necessarily, but it does raise some concerns. And I don't have the answers. Did I, did I say that? <laughs> the book just asks a lot of questions. I don't give very many answers. Um, and so that's something to think about. So where is all this going, right? I, I, I suspect that not too long from now, your wallet might be getting a little lighter. I cannot believe that the companies that have tried and tested these technologies are not going to find a way into our lives, right? I mean, it's coming. So where is this all going for the refugees? Well, these are the two concepts that I explore further in the book. The first one is the digital refugee. And so the digital refugee is a jointly constructed persona, right? Each individual refugee has their own story that they are putting into cyberspace 
not all, but many, right? And, if, and, and they control the narrative of this part of the story, right? This is what they say. Not always, because I don't always control what people say about me, right? My friends, my family, sometimes they post pictures, you're like, take that down, you know? And, and so it's not all under their control, but it's largely under the, their control. This is also their story about what happened before they fled. Would it be interesting? It is interesting to think about what that part of the refugee persona looks like. If you divorce yourself from the physical presence and space of a refugee and think about just cyberspace, what does it look like? What's out there? What information is available? Facebook pages, Instagram accounts, emails. Oh no, nobody uses email anymore. Right? Maybe a little bit. On the other hand, there's what the aid agency, the digital footprint of all of those aid agencies and all of the data that they've collected, not just in the provision of services, but in the monitoring and evaluation programs of those services. What did you think about your child's school? How did you, did you like the biometric system? Uh, how did you feel about the registration process? Every one of those processes has an opinion survey and there's just so much data available. And so this, is amazing in some sense and scary in others. So what are the implications? UNHCR has a mandate to protect, right? That's its core mission. All the other agencies, you know, World Food Program does the food. Save the Children takes care of children. I mean, UNDP does this. You know, there's a whole constellation or network of organizations that have different mandates. And UNHCR's is primarily protection. So how are they going to protect the digital refugee? Right now, their primary focus is on protecting the, the side of the digital refugee that they have constructed. They're thinking about that. My favorite question is, so how are you going to manage the data in the iris scan of the three-year-old over the course of their life, right? Where is that data going? Is, is, you know, remember I told you that that refugee life cycle was a big oversimplification? You know, if I go to Jordan and then I go down to Saudi Arabia, but then I don't like it there, and so I borrow some money, and I fly to Germany, and then I come back, and where, where is all that data? Who owns it? And who has the rights to it over the life of that child? So how will they protect this digital refugee? Are they going to buy cloud space, right? If I'm a refugee and I arrive in a camp with some clothes and, and some personal belongings, they'll give me a shelter to put that in. Are they going to give me shelter for my 
and this is, this, I mean, like every time I talk about it, it's so hard. Um, people's lives are in their phones. Their, their whole family album, the last picture of their child before they were killed is in their phones. And these phones are dying in these camps right now and everywhere there are refugees. They're dying. They're, they're either just getting old and our ability to access those files is getting more and more difficult. How, how are they going to protect that? Are they going to take ownership of that? Is it them who needs to take ownership of that? What happens when these identities or personas conflict? Whose account is valid? Right? I mean, the aid agencies have their side of that digital persona covered. They, they can tell you who you are, right? They will tell you who you are, right? Um, but what if it's not who you say you are? Whose side is valid? So what policies are needed to protect refugees and the digital refugee? And who is responsible? These are just questions. I mean, you know, we talk about it in the book, um, and I do go through in one chapter and talk about all the different levels because, you know, the UNHCR mandate is defined in international law, but not every country is a signatory to those laws. And, so, and, and then they're also implemented in, at national levels in different ways. Right? Being a refugee in one country means you can work without problem. You can move around freely. Being a refugee in another country means you're, you're only allowed to stay in the camp and you can't work. So refugee policies vary significantly from country to country. And so there's a lot of work, grad students in the audience, there's a lot of work to be done here, a lot of research that needs to be done. Okay. The next one has less to do with the refugees themselves and more to do with the provision of services to the refugees. So now, unfortunately, that picture didn't come out very good. This is a refugee sitting in a, probably a very recently arrived refugee sitting in a camp, despondent with his phone. Um, so as we find refugees more and more connected, more and more accessible to people from the outside, and we have more and more IT-savvy aid agencies, what role is there for the traditional humanitarian agencies? And I'll give you a specific example. So we were working with um, the UNHCR people in Amman, and they said, can you help us? Because we have Universities from around the world want to make scholarships available for Syrian refugees. Kudos, right? Way to go, right? You, you understand the problem of lack of access to higher education. You want to offer them a scholarship to come and study in your country. Great. Um, but they're, they're kind of reaching out directly to the refugees, and that scares everyone, right? And so UNHCR was saying, is there a way that we can try and insert ourselves into this process to make sure that those offers are not only valid, because I mean, a lot of them are reputable institutions. We assume they're valid. 
Um, but that, this, that the people who are making the offer understand the lives of the refugees and their issues. We want to make sure that those offers come with a full package of protection. We need those people to explain what kinds of psychosocial services are you going to make available for, for these refugees? What uh, language training or language vetting are you going to offer? What if they flunk out? Are they going to get sent back to Jordan? What if the Jordanian government changes their policy and doesn't let them back in? Are you going to keep them? What happens when they graduate? Are they going to be forced to leave? Or can they stay? These are all really important questions that the refugees themselves might not be asking and the universities might not be asking. And so there's clearly a need for people who understand refugee protection to be involved. But do they need to be that involved? What level of involvement? And so I think this, this notion of digital humanitarian brokerage is, is something that describes the evolution of the sector. And it's interesting, too, because this comes at a time when there is a lot of pressure for change in the sector, right? This kind of old school set of organizations that are not very tech savvy, that don't necessarily um, innovate as well as they might, although they've been doing quite a bit of efforts in this, in this area for the last few years. Um, so digital humanitarian brokerage could allow a much more diverse range of organizations and processes to develop. So how far will that protection mandate go? And how far should it go? In the cassette, I mean, this can create all kinds of new opportunities, new types of, of organizations. We've talked about um, instead of refugees being housed in camps or even given vouchers for finding apartments, you know, can there be some kind of exchange where people who are interested in hosting refugees, um, you know, this happened in Paris, right? People volunteered to host refugees, and so a little kind of grassroots movement and website developed. It goes along with their kind of embrace of market mechanisms and cash-based assistance, right? But I don't know that the idea that it should just be wide open because when people have suffered trauma and then are in a new country, they're not the most savvy consumers, right? Not everybody, right? I mean, we're talking generally. Some people are, are very savvy, even after all they've been through. So I think there is also a need to, to think about new threats and what can happen there. But I do think that this is the way things are going to be going because there's so many, I mean, I just gave the, the example of the universities and, and that situation, but there are so many of these examples of just because of the digital cash um, impetus. Okay, so that's basically it. So if you have questions, I'd love to talk about it. And like I said, I mean, the book is, um, it talks about 
kind of social and information theories in the first section and different technologies and technical approaches at, at the end and then concludes with a discussion of policies and then these trends. Um, but it is meant to be a research agenda. So it's something that graduate students can take a look at if they have, uh, if they're searching for a new project to give them some ideas. Okay, thank you. Okay, questions? I think that now with the Rohingya uh, refugee events and the recent sort of ban on selling them SIM cards and, you know, this, I guess it, it ignited a conversation in some telecom regulation spaces of like, yeah, you cannot do that. Like, why is it that this is happening? And so I was wondering, I mean, it sounds like it's probably not the first time that someone makes an outrageous decision about that. So I was wondering if you had other examples of, you know, things that telecom regulation should be, around the world, should be just, I don't know, considering. Yeah, I mean, there are um, people, governments are getting, it's interesting because in the, most of the rest of the world, people have multiple SIM cards and share SIM cards and, you know, the idea, like their relationship to a telephone number is very different from ours in the States and maybe even in Western Europe. Um, and so countries have become more and more concerned about not being able to tie a number to um, an identity. And so this is, this is creating some restrictions. Um, I have a concern because we did an analysis of uh, data in Zatari, which found that when, um, when women share SIM cards, their use of WhatsApp increases much more than men. And so women depend on sharing mechanisms with handsets and SIM cards and any kind of connectivity tools to have better access overall. And so when you limit sharing, it's probably more detrimental to women than men. Um, so what can telecom policy do? Um, some of our recommendations uh, that, you know, we've kind of posed them as questions, but um, first of all, we need more uh, innovative technologies. So Lisa keeps asking me, why can't they just build like a Wi-Fi mesh in the camp, whether it's connected to the internet or not? And I'm like, exactly, right? I mean, this would be helpful, right? Um, and so better uh, management of spectrum to allow more, I mean, this, this has benefits way beyond uh, refugee and, and displacement affairs, but thinking about that, you know, how do we manage telecommunications um, in times of emergency? What, you know, what are the requirements in that case? Um, if you have normal requirements to serve on, on, broad, on broadband operators, do influxes of refugees fall under that? And, and basically, so spectrum management and um, mandates to serve, yeah. Okay, more questions. There's a question here, yeah. Um, so you mentioned that these agencies are sort of tracking the biometric data from the irises and refugees. What happens if a refugee leaves a refugee situation? Like they become a citizen of the UK or the US through whatever process. Do they get to go back to the UNHCR and say, can you please delete my data? Um, that's a good question, and to be honest, I don't know if they delete the data. That is a very good question. Um, but I will tell you this, that the, um, the host country 
always has the right to know everything about someone who comes into, well I shouldn't say always has the right to know everything, but they have rights to the data. So when UNHCR collects that data, they do that on, on behalf of the host country. And so they regularly, like in Kenya, they were collecting all the data, then the Kenyan government was taking over the RSD process, the refugee status determination process, and the registration process, and so they just would hand over the data set to the Kenyan government. Um, that is the government's data, and UNHCR and all the UN agencies in any country operate at the permission, with the permission of the host government. Um, when you come to the United States, UNHCR is part and parcel, and Matt could probably talk more about this, um, he's worked for the, IO, the International um, Organization for Migration, is part and, process, part and parcel of the, of the refugee status determination and vetting process. So all of that data come into the U.S. government, and I would expect the same in the U.K. So yeah, it's, it's an intergovernmental transfer of data, whether they delete the record from UNHCR, I don't know. I'd like to think so, but somehow I doubt it. <laughs> yeah, did you have a question? No? More questions? Yeah? It's less of a question, um, yeah. and I suppose more of a comment on, on um, your question. I think that since we're pushing refugees into this digital ecosystem, the pertinent question, and I'm biased because Oh, yeah. Because yeah. I think that's a conversation that, that yeah. needs to happen. Yeah, that is very much my, my concern. And we've done some work trying to, because I work with these organizations, I'm like, all right, you know, I can either like sit outside and la ba, you know, or I can push them. So in Zatari, we said, hey, you guys have, you, you've got this data collection thing down. How about the refugees collect their own data and not data to serve you? data to serve them and their own decision making. And so they were pushing this um, asset-based community development approach um, to help the refugees develop a sense of community and to solve their own problems, mostly because the money was drying out and when they had plenty of money, they didn't want the refugees solving their own problems, but when the money was running out, they wanted them to. So we said, okay. Um, what if we train them to collect and manage their own data? And it was so, I won't say funny, I'll say interesting, um, to see UNHCR, who was funding the project, they just, they were like, yeah, but if you collect it in that way, it's not gonna be useful to us. And I'm like, it's not about you, it's about them, right? Again and again, and, and it just, but it's not useful to us. It's not useful to us. It's not about you. So, you know, we're working on it. And they, you know, they're buying it slowly. They invite us to go to Kigali and do it with urban refugees there. So we're, we're trying to make those inroads. And that's, but that's no way refugees have an access to the data that they've given UNHCR. It's a totally different thing. I'm probably not brave enough to even try that. <laughs> yeah? Um, I was just wondering if, if you know anything about the decision to do iris scanning as opposed to fingerprinting. I do. Um, and then, um, is there, given that there's not a lot of iris transactioning going on in post-industrial Western wannabe democracies, um, 
you know, I just wonder if this is kind of experimentation, like a test bed for a lot of these systems, and it's, they're being tested on people that don't have clear civil rights, because they're in these precarious and vulnerable in-between conditions, and so I'm just, I, I just wonder, like, I haven't. I have not. Ex I have not explored in depth the biometric industry. Uh -huh. However, as compelling as that argument <laughs> would be, I would push back on it because I know that in um, in Jordan, the company that is developing and promoting that system is Jordanian. So this is more uh, an outcome of authoritarian regimes because that company started selling biometric technology to the um, Emirati government back when like airport control, security, and all of that. So I would say that industrially and in innovation-wise, that the Middle East is a hotbed of technology innovation in the biometric space, and it's not just for refugees. I mean, people, mm -hmm. Jordanians, go to their uh, ATM machine and use iris scan technology for their own transactions, and this is considered ex acceptable by some parts of society, and the government probably loves it. And so, you know, big bad American technology company um, pushing this on, you know, that, that works for a lot of things, but maybe not this one. Yeah, I wasn't really pointing the finger at American companies, but oh. just, the, um, just the idea that of, of these, of camps or refugee conditions being sites for experimentation of technologies and practices that might not be readily accepted in countries that have, you know, civil rights laws that or, or even privacy laws as much as they're being eroded there are there's a lot of pushback on biometric yeah. uh, data collection and, and in you know d democratic states yeah so. i i really think that it's more like just geeky people at world food program who want to improve efficiency right and who see that you know they probably walk around them on and see people using this technology and you say hey we could use that in the camp you know and and so and there it goes right and then it takes off and there's a report and this person gets promoted within wfp everybody says how did that person get promoted they did this innovation oh i'll do it too you know and it just goes i mean it's just it just goes that's why i said it's coming <laughs> I mean, uh, you mentioned the example of women sort of trading phones and, and how much people's lives are on their phones. So I was wondering if you've seen examples of sort of like entrepreneur, like tech entrepreneurship, but like within the camps. You know, like when say there's someone who either like knows how to fix phones or um, has like multiple battery chargers or yes. like adapters. Yes. Like, do you see examples yes. of yes. that? Yes. Um, yes. Or in and possibly even things that might not exist yeah. in a situation that's not a yeah. you know refugee camp. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I think we were talking in the workshop, too, about the differences between camps and how camps are managed. So they're very different. Some are, like, locked down. You know, I felt like Zlatry was pretty constrained, but people said, oh, no, that's, like, a free-for-all compared to other camps in, in Jordan. Um, and then if you go to, like, Uganda, I expect to find a much more open, you know. But in Zatari, I mean, anything that could be solved through entrepreneurship and, you know, would be. I mean, it was just, you know, they were saying, oh, we're going to bring in electricity, right? Well, 
you find out that actually people had snuck in generators and were selling electricity to people all over the place. I mean, mm -hmm. anything that could be solved through entrepreneurship. And so there probably are people within the camp who are, who are doing that, you know. But then we talk about, okay, so then there's the profit motive, right? Like, so if, if one refugee can't afford to have their memories stored, what happens to them, right? And so that's, and it's interesting because that's one of the, one of the challenges that, you know, I was like, why don't you just let the, elect, the, the refugees buy electricity from, from each other or from you or whatever, because they were electrifying the camp and there was a big issue with, I mean, it's crazy to try to offer electricity to anybody without any kind of mechanism to ration it, you know? And we use the market mechanism to ration it here, but we can't charge for services. It's against the UN mandate for UNHCR to charge for services. So whatever they give, they have to give for free. And so that's one of the problems. And then they look at, because there are significantly different uh, levels of wealth in any refugee population. I mean, you'll find people with master's degrees. You'll find people who fled there and have cars. And I mean, it, it's, it's amazing the differences, right? Um, then you have people who are illiterate living next door, which is also a really interesting thing that, you know, we usually have these separations in our society by socioeconomic status. And uh, a crisis like this just brings everybody into the mix together. Yeah. So you see people almost like becoming more aware of, of that. You know, like um, educated people in the camp were like, wow, I'm really shocked about how many illiterate people there are. And it's like, oh, you didn't know that? And, you're on, like, and I was like, yeah, I, I probably am not so aware of it in my own country either. Right? Did you have a question? No, you're gonna pass? Okay. Alrighty, I'll have another one. Okay. <laughs> Just, um, I thought your point about uh, the phones of people dying was a really interesting point mm. uh, about all this data, of, especially maybe photographs of people oh, that families that were separated yeah. from one another. Yeah. And are you aware, aware of any um, projects to try to help to store and back up any of that data? I am people? not, but it doesn't mean they don't exist. I'm just uh -huh. not personally. Uh -huh. I was going to say, I feel like this is something that would be right up Google.org's yeah. thing, especially with their cloud computing stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's what people were saying. They're like, oh, they just put it all on Google. And I'm like, hmm, not sure I want to be saying that. <laughs> I'll let somebody else make that recommendation. Just being an American, I'm like, hmm, okay. We'll let, we'll let a, somebody from France say that. <laughs> but even then, it's not set up for that kind of use because it relies on a two-factor authentication that relies on SMS, and if you're a refugee, yeah. You're not going to keep the same mobile number for long enough to... Right, right. And, and then also email. So much of this stuff is, there, you know, like one of the challenges of getting them to be able to use the UNHCR server, which is open um, for people to store information on, this particular COBO server that they have, was they were like, well, we don't have an email. Like, we, who uses email anymore? You know, they were like, we don't use email. So we're like, well, you can sign up and get a Gmail account for free and then and then get access to the server. But it wasn't something like for lifetime access, you know? And, and so many people like, are complaining now also about the fact that the trending development of mobile devices, because we're relying on the cloud, means that they are faster, but also less storage yeah. in phones. And right. so all these people 
right. will not be connected to the cloud and they will have the storage. Right, right. And this whole moving back and forth and different carriers and different numbers, you know, do you know, we need a system of universal global phone numbers and you have your phone number and it stays with you forever or something. Who knows? But because of the way the market is structured, it's not going to happen. Right. Okay. All righty. I got to catch a plane. <laughs> <laughs>